It is my pleasure to welcome our speaker, Stephen Mosky. Uh, Stephen Mosky is a native of West Hartford, Connecticut. Mosky holds a Bachelor's of Science, a Master's, and a Doctorate in Linguistics and Modern European Languages, all from Georgetown University. In 2010, he retired from corporate communications and public affairs to pursue a career as an independent researcher, writer, and editor, focusing on American cultural and social history between 1865 and 1950. From 2012 to 2013, he served as a consultant to the town of Brookline, conducting research on the historical and cultural significance of the Lars Anderson Park, the former estate of Lars Anderson III, and Isabel Weld Perkins. Last year, he was a member of an international, international research team that worked to reconstruct the early history of the American Hospital of Paris using archival materials in the United States and France. Mosky is a member of the Historical Society of Washington, the Victorian Society of America, and the Latrobe chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians. Today, Mosky will focus on Mrs. Anderson's literary and theatrical accomplishments with a special focus on her wartime memoir, Zigzagging, from 1918. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Stephen Mosky. Thank you. Until I stepped here, I didn't know how large the audience was, so I'm glad to see you all here today. Um, and it's great for me to be back at the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, I did research here for the book around 2011. Yeah, so long ago, I don't remember the exact time, but the archivists and the librarians here were wonderful, and um, I feel equally welcomed today. Um, I'm going to be talking to you today about this lady. Isabel Weld Perkins Anderson, who for almost 50 years was a writer, editor, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, an impresario. That was not how most of the world thought about her, however, during her lifetime. The world wanted to see her as a wealthy heiress whose identity was tied to that of her husband, Lars, who presented himself to the world as an accomplished American diplomat and connoisseur of the best that life had to offer. Newspapers and the general public wanted to see Mrs. Anderson in her finest and most expensive clothing, furs, and jewelry, accompanying her husband to diplomatic, cultural, and political events in Washington, Paris, London, Rome, and Tokyo, and they speculated a lot about a lot of aspects of her life. Uh, one newspaper account uh, reported that they had spent a quarter of a million dollars on a dress. Totally not true, but that's the kind of excesses that the public wanted to see in those days. Uh, unfortunately, her husband Lars was complicit in promoting this view of his wife, although he also encouraged her in her work as a writer. In that regard, Mrs. Anderson, as a Gilded Age woman, was very lucky to have had Lars as her husband. But I do think that Lars was the luckier of the two, since he derived much of his fame and all of his fortune from her. My purpose today is to present Mrs. Anderson to you as she herself would want to be remembered, particularly to a Boston audience such as this one. 
a writer who took her craft seriously and who wanted to share her view of the world with her readers, both children's and adults, through storytelling, poetry, personal memoir, drama, and music. Mrs. Anderson had a deep connection to Boston. Um, and I'll just point out, this is a um, 1876 uh, photograph of Commonwealth Avenue. And this was the house that Mrs. Anderson grew up in, 123 Commonwealth. And I'll show a better picture of that in a moment. Uh, where am I? OK. Um, she was educated in Boston, married here, and was deeply committed to the artistic and literary life of this city. She also took a deep interest in social causes that were ahead of her time. For example, she was very concerned about the status of women in Massachusetts prisons, and she made regular visits to the Charlestown prison to talk to the warden there about how women were faring and what could be done to improve their lot. She was also an early supporter of higher education for women and was deeply involved in what was then known as the College of Practical Arts and Letters at Boston University. Uh, that school closed in 1955 and was later incorporated into other parts of Boston University. So her legacy in helping promote that lives on. She was also a shareholder in the Athenaeum for most of her life. And while I never found anything in her writing talking about the Boston Athenaeum, I'm almost certain, in fact, I am certain that she was proud of her affiliation and her membership here. Several volumes from her personal library are in the archives of the Athenaeum, and most of her published works are in the circulating collection. When my book, Lars and Isabel Anderson, Wealth and Celebrity in the Gilded Age, was, was published last April, I realized that there was so much about Boston in it that there was no way I could give just one talk. And fortunately, Boston agrees with me. <laughs> uh, my biography of the Andersons has served as the basis for a series of four interconnected lectures that I've given in Boston and in Brookline on different aspects of the Andersons' life and their relationship to Boston. I gave the first lecture last July at the Lars Anderson Auto Museum in Brookline, where I reintroduced the couple to Boston and placed them squarely in the context of American and Bostonian cultural and social history. I thought of that inaugural lecture as a homecoming for the Andersons, bringing them back to their beloved summer home in Brookline and into the public eye of this great city for the first time in almost 70 years. And just a note on this photograph, it ne was never before published. It appears as the frontispiece to my book. I found it in an auction on eBay, and no one had ever seen it before. So I w I'm happy to show it to you. And it's my favorite portrait of the two of them together. I gave a second lecture in September at the Boston Public Library, where I talked about the Andersons' deep connections to Massachusetts and Boston history and highlighted some of the city's most distinctive neighborhoods and buildings that played a role in their life here. And what you see here is uh, 284 Marlboro on the left, which is the house Mrs. Anderson was born in, 
and 123 Commonwealth, the house that her parents bought when she was five years old and that she considered her true childhood home. In October, I gave a third lecture at the Waterworks Museum in Boston where I talked about the art, architecture, and landscapes of what was then called Weld, the Andersons' Brookline Estate from 1898 until 1948, and now the Lars Anderson Park. The park still contains many traces of the Andersons' life there, and if you read the book and go to visit or revisit the park, I promise you'll see it in a new light. There's much hidden in plain sight there that tells their story, and I think it's a wonderful adventure to go and try to find some of those things on your own. I've titled today's lecture, Mrs. Isabel Anderson as writer, editor, and impresario. She was each of those things, oops, did I go past one too many? There. Um, I've titled, uh, she was each of those things for almost 50 years, writing children's books, works of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, dramatic works for juvenile and adult audiences. She edited books of family history, including compilations of her husband's, her father-in-law's, and her mother-in-law's letters and papers, and writing librettos and lyrics, and directing, the financial, uh, directing and financing theatrical and musical performances in Boston during the Depression. It was an impressive accomplishment, all of it. My goal today is to introduce you to the broad themes of Mrs. Anderson's intellectual pursuits and the literary legacy she left behind. And I want to emphasize that during her lifetime, while she was known as a writer and as a producer of plays, particularly in Boston, that was not how the world saw her, yet that was her own image of herself. I don't have time today to summarize in any meaningful way Mr. and Mrs. Anderson's long and complex and happy life together. And there's not much I have time to say about Lars, although I have a lot to say about him in the book. Today is Mrs. Anderson's day at the Boston Athenaeum, and given her long interest in books, writing, and editing, interests that coincide completely with those of the Boston Athenaeum, there's plenty to talk about. The Athenaeum has also asked that I talk about one of her books in particular, one that has a special anniversary this year, and I'm delighted to do that, and I'll talk about that uh, later in uh, this morning, this afternoon. And this is the earliest image of Mrs. Anderson that we know of. Uh, she was 19 at the time, and it is a pastel that was made while she was in Rome. And I'll talk more about that trip in a moment. Mrs. Anderson was born Isabel Weld Perkins in 1876 in Back Bay. Her father was Commodore George Hamilton Perkins of Contacook, New Hampshire, a much decorated US Navy officer who served under Admiral David Farragut. Oh, and we have a picture of him here. Her mother was Anna Minot Weld, daughter of the great Boston clipper ship merchant, William Fletcher Weld. Each of her parents contributed something to young Isabel's interest in writing. And I'll point out that this statue on the left is one that 
Mrs. Anderson commissioned of her father in uh, around 1910 by Daniel Chester French. And there's an exhibition here of French's um, work, which I encourage you, I got a chance to see it. It's a wonderful um, exhibition. It's clear from Mrs. Anderson's accounts of her childhood that her father's Navy stories of visiting exotic lands and peoples on other continents sparked her interest in the world at large, a curiosity that is at the heart of every writer's passion to write. She once described how captivated she was by hearing her father's stories of his sailing adventures. In my book, I thus credit George Perkins as the earliest source of Mrs. Anderson's most basic impulse to be a storyteller. Mrs. Anderson's mother provided another source of inspiration for her daughter's interest in writing, though indirectly. Through my research, I was able to document conclusively that Anna Minot Weld was the mysterious and somewhat problematic companion who traveled with Louisa May Alcott in Europe in 1865, who appears in standard Alcott biographies identified only as Miss W. Sometime in the early 1930s, Mrs. Anderson wrote an unpublished essay about Louisa and Anna, which if true, upsets much of the canon of scholarship on Alcott and the nature of her friendship with Ladislaw Wisniewski, the young Polish patriot whom they met in Vevey, Switzerland. Laddie, as the two young women called him, was Alcott's inspiration for the character Laurie in Little Women. I present Mrs. Anderson's essay about Anna and Louise in its entirety as an appendix to the book so that literary historians and Alcott biographers can form their own opinion of Anna Weld Perkins' version of what happened between the two women in Vevey that autumn of 1865. As I say in the book, Isabel's mother had once been the friend of a very famous American author. That would be enough to make any little girl dream of seeing her own name in print. And what you're seeing here on the slide uh, is Louisa and Anna. And um, I found their passport applications filled out on the same day and both attested to by William Fletcher Weld, uh, Anna's father. So this is the conclusive proof. There. And then uh, Mrs. Anderson in her essay provides further corroboration that uh, the two women traveled together. Mrs. Anderson's education was another foundation of her writing. She was educated at Miss Windsor's school and was a member of its first graduating class in 1895. Though the Windsor School does not have any academic records for her, Mrs. Jane Otte, whom I think many of you know, who was the archivist at Windsor for many years, believes, um, sorry, uh, showed me this item, uh, a Windsor report card for the school term 1897 to 1898, only two years after Mrs. Anderson graduated. And Mrs. Otte is fairly cer certain that the curriculum that Isabel followed for her five years at Miss Windsor School was very similar to what you see here. 
not taking every subject in every year, but by the end of the five years, um, having had uh, a very broad uh, exposure to literature, uh, languages, art, and history. After graduation from Miss Windsor School, Isabel went on a year-long grand tour of Europe, the Holy Land, and Egypt with Boston writer Maud Howe Elliott as her chaperone. And this, by the way, is, I think, probably my favorite portrait of Mrs. Elliott by uh, Jose Viegas y Cordero. During that year abroad, Mrs. Elliott also served as teacher, mentor, and confidant to 18-year-old Isabel. And the example that Mrs. Elliott set as a competent, independent woman who established herself in society as a writer must surely have been an inspiration to young Isabel Perkins. Thus, before her 19th birthday, Isabel had become very familiar with two great American women writers, one who had been her mother's friend, at least temporarily, and one who would be her own lifelong friend and mentor. That trip abroad was also important in Mrs. Anderson's biography for another reason. It was on that trip in Rome in the winter of 1896 that she met her future husband, Lars, who was then serving at the American Embassy in Rome. I'm going to shift over to talking about Mrs. Anderson's literary accomplishments, but before I do that, I want to show you this item, which comes from the archives of the Athenaeum. It was perhaps one of the greatest finds uh, in my research. It's a um, printed bibliography of Mrs. Anderson's works as of the late 30s, and sometime in the 1940s, Mrs. Anderson herself annotated it and updated it and corrected it. So in a way, it's almost the most perfect record that we have of what Mrs. Anderson considered to be her corpus uh, of works. And um, you can see all of the notations. Some of the other pages look even more interesting than this with Mrs. Anderson's own handwriting, but that's not legible, so I didn't include those pages. Um, I'm going to try to give you a sense of Mrs. Anderson's literary output I can't describe it all for you, obviously, and I don't have time to talk with you even about all of the genres that she wrote in. Again, my book does that for you. I've structured my talk today around three major aspects of her writing. I first want to talk about the sheer volume of her work and describe some of her writing methodology, how she went about producing that output. And then I want to talk about three of her probably most prolific genres, children's book, travelogues, and plays. I think these are the three genres that most typify her work uh, from a public perspective during her lifetime. And then I'm going to conclude with um, talking about Mrs. what I think is Mrs. Anderson's most significant literary um, accomplishment. I wasn't going to say the title before, but in my introduction, zigzagging her book about her war experiences. Um, I don't want to overwhelm you with, a, with any kinds of statistics, but uh, whether we look at her, the number of books that she published year by year over a 50-year period, 
you see a steady output. This this is about this is 58 books over almost 50 years. You see that there's a constant output, and these were not small books. When you look at the output in terms of the number of pages produced each year, you can see uh, the top number there is around 800. Um, she published consistently, continually at the same level throughout her life. I'm going to talk a little bit about how she was able to do that. Um, one, by any measure, Mrs. Anderson earned every byline that, that appeared on her work. And one element of her productivity was the time she spent alone away from her husband and his busy city-based life. She went several times a year to a small rustic cabin in southern New Hampshire where she gave herself time and time alone to devote herself fully to her writing. The cabin is described in some detail in the book, but this picture of the cabin taken during Mrs. Anderson's lifetime gives you a sense of its look and feel. And we're all New Englanders here, so I can call it a camp because that's what it was. Um, and it, it had a very distinctive layout and architecture that I don't have time to talk about, but it's in the book and you'll be able to read about it, write about it there. Um, I do want to say that one of the other, there were many great moments in writing the book, but um, being in touch with Isabel's family, through her Perkins family in New Hampshire, and having them invite me to come to see Mrs. Anderson's camp was, it was a huge thrill, and I got to go twice. Um, and if you see these little, um, these little porcelain figurines up there, um, they're still there, and the cabin is essentially as it was during Mrs. Anderson's lifetime. So this was such an important place to her, and I was able to write about it in some detail because I had experienced it almost as she had left it, even to the point that photographs she had pinned pinned to the wall with thumbtacks were still there. Uh, quite an amazing preservation of, of the interior. Another aspect of her productivity was that at least six literary assistants and secretaries worked for Mrs. Anderson during her, her 50 years of productivity. She also had typists in what was then known as the Weld Family Office in downtown Boston. These ladies assisted her with typing and retyping and retyping and retyping the drafts of her work. She frequently and graciously acknowledged the contributions of all these women in the introductions and prefaces to her books. She did not hide the fact that like many other prolific writers, she too had research and editorial assistance. These women, were at times collaborators, co-authors, and co-editors. They provided Mrs. Anderson with access to expertise in such areas as theater, poetry, and literary criticism. Um, and one of the great fun things that I got to do was find out who these women were and why they went to work for Mrs. Anderson, and you'll find that in the book um, as well. I want to tell you about one of Mrs. Anderson's uh, assistance in some detail, however, and that's this lady, Eleanor Wilbur Pomeroy, uh, who was born near Lubeck, Maine in 1866 
and died in a nursing home in Waltham in 1968. Eleanor was Mrs. Anderson's closest and most trusted literary assistant for two decades. And I don't know if I said this, but she did work full time for her for those 20 years. Um, I had the great, uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, experience uh, to actually meet people who knew Mrs. Anderson and, and Mr. Anderson and people who appear in the story like um, Eleanor Pomeroy, and I want to acknowledge Reverend Charles, Charles Harper, who was a Congregationalist minister in Boston for many years, who knew uh, Eleanor Pomeroy and was able to share some of her impressions uh, with me um, as the book was going to press, and I got to make a few word changes based on that interview. Um, Eleanor was a 1911 graduate of Emerson College who worked as a magazine writer and night school English teacher before she met Mrs. Anderson. And I don't know how they met, but in 1929, Eleanor Pomeroy went to work full-time for Mrs. Anderson. They had a really close working relationship, although they never became familiar with each other. They always addressed each other as Mrs. Anderson and Miss Pomeroy. Eleanor is especially important to our understanding of Mrs. Anderson's literary work because in 1949, the year after Mrs. Anderson died, Eleanor gave very detailed depositions during a arbitration, uh, a year-long arbitration around the settlement of Mrs. Anderson's estate in which Eleanor provided a first-hand account of Mrs. Anderson's workmanlike approach to the craft of writing. In one, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that, that popped up, but that's all right. In one part of her testimony, Eleanor described how she would arrive at the mansion in Brookline at 9.30 in the morning and go to a small den where she would find her assignments for that day written out on slips of paper. And this is um, a, a, one of those slips of paper um, that I found in the Harvard archives uh, of a, a court, a communication between uh, Eleanor and Mrs. Pom Mrs. Anderson about one of the projects that they were working on. Uh, so it was, uh, and then you see up in the upper right-hand corner, Miss Pomeroy, 34 Concord Square. Is that right? Yes. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that house in a minute. Mrs. Anderson would come downstairs within an hour of Eleanor's arrival, and the two women would work together for several hours. Even when Mrs. Anderson was not in Brookline, which could be up to five or six months a year during Lars's lifetime, although after his death in 1937, she essentially lived year-round in Brookline except for trips to New Hampshire and trips to visit uh, family in other parts of the country. Um, so even when Mrs. Anderson was away, Eleanor continued working on projects, um, either at the mansion where she would have access to Mrs. Anderson's literary files and her, Mrs. Anderson's personal research library of several thousand volumes, or at Eleanor's home at 34 Concord Square. And the house is still there. And one of the things I did in writing the book as much as possible, I went to places that were significant in the Anderson's life so that I would know what it was like and be able to bring a sense of reality. Uh, this 
having the ability to make those visits and those connections made the Andersons and their era seem much closer to me uh, than, than they might have otherwise uh, felt. Okay. And then uh, Eleanor also went up to New Hampshire and worked with Mrs. Anderson when she was there. Um, as th uh, that was her writer's retreat. After Mrs. Anderson's death in 1948, Eleanor continued working on her former employer's literary papers, helping the executors by sorting and arranging them for preservation. I believe that it was largely through Eleanor's efforts that a significant portion of Mrs. Anderson's papers and literary papers ended up at Boston University, an institution that Mrs. Anderson had a very close relationship with, as I'd mentioned. So now I want to turn to talking about three of the genres that Mrs. Anderson wrote in, children's literature, travelogues, and drama, and then talk about the, 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 the one special book. Mrs. Anderson started her career as an author with the publication in 1909 of The Great Seahorse, which you see here on the left, a large and complex project that took several years to complete. The 25 short stories in The Seahorse are populated with mermaids and merboys, seashells, fairies, flowers, gnomes, and human-like underwater creatures that she called brownies and pinkies. The stories are amusing and inventive, and I think that if the book were available again in print, it would surely captivate young readers. Between 1910 and 1911, Mrs. Anderson published in rapid succession a series of six more children's books, including a seventh and an eighth, a French and a German translation of one of them, uh, making a total of eight books, all around the same central character Captain Ginger, and you see the book here on the left, and that's Captain Ginger, who Mrs. Anderson described as a sickly four-year-old boy named Jimmy. Well, I found out that Jimmy was a real boy, and the book reveals who he was and why Mrs. Anderson wrote books for him. Mrs. Anderson stopped writing children's books around the, oh, and I just want to show one other thing. Um, there are always lots of nice surprises that happen when you're doing this. And I bought a copy of The Great Seahorse, which is out of print, very hard to find. Um, and the copy that I received from a seller in um, Canada was Maud Howe Elliott's own copy that she had inscribed to her god, um, godson in 1940. And I contacted Maud Howe Elliott's biographer, who knew immediately who this was. And she's at the Newport Art League. And she said, would you like to donate that book to us? But <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so um, a lot of interesting things like that showed up. Um, Mrs. Anderson stopped writing children's, oh, did I say that already? No, she stopped writing. Um, children's books rather abruptly after the Captain Ginger series. This was around the time that Maud Howe Elliott and her sister, Laura Richards, were writing their 1915 Pulitzer Prize winning biography of their mother, Julia Ward Howe. In the book, I speculate that in the wake of her mentor's Pulitzer Prize, 
Mrs. Anderson may have been self-conscious about her choice of genre and subject, and thus turned her attention to adult nonfiction. Um, also, I think it's quite possible that Mrs. Elliott encouraged her to branch out and try other genres. The, the children's books, however, are, in my opinion, among her most successful. After 1914, Mrs. Anderson turned her attention to nonfiction for adults, as I said. Her first titles in this genre, travelogues, were written after her return from accompanying her husband to Belgium and Japan during his diplomatic service under President Taft between late 1911 and early 1913. These two books were part of the Spell series published by the Page Company here in Boston. They followed a format prescribed by the publisher, a few chapters about the audience, the author's experiences in a foreign country, followed by a few dozen chapters covering a potpourri of cultural, historical, geographic, economic, political, and so on, information. Except for the chapters about the Andersons' experiences, most of these early books could have been written by anyone and these titles in Mrs. Anderson's biography, bibliography rather, do not really stand the test of time. But I don't think it was her fault. She was adhering to a template that the publisher required of its authors. Uh, and over time, as she gained more experience and she left the page company and started publishing elsewhere, she wrote travel books that were much more interesting, much more compelling, and that do stand the test of time and that really are more books of personal memoir as much as they are travelogues. One of my favorite books from this later period of her travel writing is called A Yacht in Mediterranean Seas, which I describe in some detail in the book, both as an example of the kind of adventure that Mrs. Anderson and her husband went on, uh, but also an example of one of these finer later books. As I said, these later books are more like works of personal memoir. Um, and one of Mrs. Anderson's strengths in this genre was connecting what she experienced on their travels to her own life and her own experience of the world. In one passage in this book, for example, while reflecting on the beautiful views of Greek landscapes that they saw from this yacht, the Sayonara, which was not theirs, they had rented it, she connected the experience of seeing Greek landscape to her own childhood. And she wrote, I quote, as a child, I loved Greek mythology and peopled the mountains and vales of Greece as I saw them in my imagination with the gods and goddesses of ancient Greece. While visiting Constantinople, as it was then known, it, uh, and visiting the Dol Dolmabache Palace, she established a rather surprising connection to Boston. Domabache means filled-in garden, she wrote, which we thought not pretty until we remembered that we ourselves lived in the filled-in back bay section of Boston. Between 1914 and the late 1930s, Mrs. Anderson wrote 26 plays and musicals that were perhaps her most ambitious creative efforts, especially the musicals. She once said that all of her dramatic work, whether for children or adults, was based in one form or another 
on the stories presented in The Great Seahorse and the Captain Ginger series. During the Depression, Mrs. Anderson shifted most of her efforts to producing lavish musicals in collaboration with Boston-area directors, composers, and lyricists. Her collaborators on many of the musical theater pieces were the Boston composer and professor of music, Grace Warner Gulazian, and the Boston-based theatrical director, Pierre de Reeder. She was intimately and directly involved in virtually all aspects of these productions, from working with her composers and artistic directors to supervising details of costuming and to being present during the rehearsals. She also funded the production herself. And in this, she was truly an impresario, not just the creative force behind the productions. The musicals blended exotic geographies with adventure, morality tales, love stories, and Eastern religion. And all that was packaged in colorful sets and costumes accompanied by lively music. They explored themes of good versus evil, the triumph of virtue and love, and the wisdom of humanity. Mrs. Anderson understood the impact of the Depression on Boston's theatrical community, and her complex productions with large casts, scenery, costumes, lighting, and live music employed hundreds of out-of-work actors, musicians, and stagehands. One of her most popular Boston productions was the musical Princess Marina in 1932. Populated by fantastical sea creatures, mermaids, royalty, foreign envoys, it tells the story of a mermaid princess who ventures onto land seeking a prince as her lover. And in the book I tell the story, it was almost closed down by the Boston city censor um, you can tell from the costume that it was a little bit avant-garde for its era. But there had been a wardrobe malfunction, as we call it, during uh, one of the rehearsals attended by the Boston City Censor, and he threatened to close down the production. But Mrs. Um, Anderson had invited Mayor Curley to the opening night, and he wanted to see the show for himself. And after the show, being an astute public, uh, politician and realizing that the show was providing employment for many people, he told the Boston City Censor, censor not to ever go to one of Mrs. Anderson's plays again. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned earlier that the Athenaeum has asked me to talk about one of Mrs. Anderson's books in particular, which I'm delighted to do because the book is without question, my favorite of everything that she wrote. It's called Zigzagging, and it was published in 1918. In early fall 1917, shortly after the U.S. entered what was then called the Great War, and hence the anniversary that the Athenaeum has asked me to remember in speaking to you today, the centennial of the American entry into the Great War, Mrs. Anderson responded to a call from the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Red Cross for 50 of its members to serve in war hospitals and canteens in France. Like many women of her class, she felt called to serve her country. 
American women, especially elite American women, had been locked into social expectations and protocols for decades. And up to that moment, they had had few opportunities at home or abroad to express their patriotism or their willingness to engage in public service. But the war in Europe gave them an opportunity to do just that. Between 1914 and 1918, some 25,000 American women served in France and Belgium as nurses, ambulance drivers, and canteen workers. Many social historians credit some of the profound changes in the status of American women, their independence, uh, to this experience. This is certainly what happened in Mrs. Anderson's life. And I just want to quickly show, this is, uh, from, this is a map that appears in the book. This was the Western Front, and Mrs. Anderson served in hospitals and canteens right up against the front, so she was definitely in the zone of danger. In the fall of 1970, uh, let me skip ahead to that um, since I'm running out of time. Uh, when she first arrived in France, she went to the American hospital, uh, the French military hospital in Cugny, and you see her here in, in the hospital ward. And uh, she also served for a time with a Belgian Red Cross uh, hospital at La Panne, which was where the Belgian royalty had established the military headquarters for the Belgian resistance. And there's Mrs. Anderson, uh, again, in her white nurse's uniform. Mrs. Anderson learned to live with little in the way of comfort during her time in Europe. The housing for volunteer women consisted of primitive, poorly furnished, and unheated rooms in cheap hotels or abandoned houses. Despite the hardship, she always looked for something about her surroundings to cheer her up. She writes in zigzagging, for example, I drew the very worst room engaged by the Red Cross at the hotel. It was an attic, it was dirty. You could see only the sky and a little piece of roof. There was one red blanket and the room was too small even for a chair. Yet I really became attached to my attic and began to think the red blanket cheerful. I enjoyed watching the aeroplanes in the sky. At a desk which I made for myself out of my travel bags and by the light of two candles struck, stuck into old bottles, these notes of my life in France as a canteen worker were begun. This is not what we expect to hear from a Boston socialite, but then there's much about Mrs. Anderson that I think is already surprising you. I believe that after this war experience, Mrs. Anderson saw her own privileged life in a new way and never again fully bought into the pomp and circumstance that Lars had sought. After his death in 1937, she did away with many of the trappings of luxury that had meant so much to him. For the rest of her life, another 11 years, she lived a much simpler life on a much smaller scale and was probably happier for it, though she never emotionally recovered from the loss of her husband. The seeds of this simplification in her life had been sowed, I believe, 20 years earlier in the battle zones 
of France and Belgium. This is perhaps my all-time favorite photograph of her uh, riding a horse in the mountains of Colorado in 1920. And as the film, in the film it says, this is how she wanted to be remembered, I think. I want to close my talk by reading a short passage from my book. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book, actually, about ex an experience that young Isabel Weld Perkins had during her year abroad with Maud Howe Elliott an experience that I think helped set the tone for her own life as a writer. During her year abroad, Isabel learned much from Maud that fostered her adolescent literary ambitions. Most importantly, she learned that women who derive their greatness from the arts and letters are respected and admired, even by reigning monarchs. One day while walking in the woods, near Partenkirchen, Germany, Maud and Isabel encountered the Empress Elizabeth of Austria. The Empress spontaneously bowed to Maud and her young charge. Maud and the Empress had met several times before. That day's lesson was that a woman's celebrity did not have to come from material wealth or political influence, but could come from the power of her pen. Thank you very much for being here today, and I'd be delighted to take your questions.